Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism and how to celebrate cultural differences. I am fascinated with the human brain. Early childhood professionals talk a lot about the importance of the first 1,000 days of a child's life and how quickly babies are building their brains. We know that babies come into the world with this natural ability to notice patterns and form connections, including connections about race. For a baby, if they're swimming and they're living and they're breathing, the culture of race being an important factor of how it dictates our lives, well, at what age do they start to pick up that information, right? Even without being explicitly taught. That's Dr. Sharice Pickron. She's a developmental psychologist at the University of Minnesota's Institute of Child Development, where she runs something called the Child Brain and Perception Lab. Dr. Pickron's research looks at the patterns that babies and young children notice when they look at people's faces, including how they respond to physical differences that we as adults often associate with race. Her research points towards some surprising and concrete ways that parents and caregivers can disrupt racial bias. Dr. Pickron identifies as biracial. Her mother is white and her father is African-American. She says that talking about race and her family's cultural background was a regular part of everyday conversation. It wasn't until she got older that she realized this wasn't the norm for all families. My parents, you know, we always would talk about kind of our cultural backgrounds and being proud of having Italian heritage and having like Black American heritage and not necessarily knowing very much about kind of African ancestral background Mm -hmm. from my family, but knowing we had Black heritage in the U.S. and coming up from the South. And anytime there was a class assignment to talk about your family, it was always very, very proud to have both represented. Um, And my parents made it very clear that, that they're teaching us to be proud of all sides, all Mm -hmm. components of our racial and ethnic identity. And I didn't realize that that was not something that everybody experiences with their parents until much older. Mm. (laughs) Again, because my parents are open and made it clear that we could ask any kinds of questions. Mm. And um, there were other Black, white, biracial families in the town with young children that we grew up in. And so we had kind of this multicultural family group, which again, like really contributed to my own awareness and comfort and it's never been something special to talk about, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. just a part of the daily conversation. Yes, yes. I like how you say that. It's just part of the daily conversation. And that's what we would hope for all families is that they're able to 
to just weave it into part of their natural conversation. Do you think that that awareness that you had had anything to do with the career you ended up in and the studies that you are now studying? Absolutely. You know, some people use this term called me search. In some ways, some people will use it in in a negative way, in a negative connotation of, oh, you're just studying yourself and Mm -hmm. that's all you can think about. Um, But I, I use it as, well, I'm interested in further exploring kind of the experiences and perspectives that my home environment fostered for me Mm. and wanting to understand how home environment shapes children's thinking. How does home environment shapes children's um, perceptions and representations of people? And I think that partly was driven by my own experience of having a really rich and supportive home environment in this particular context of race and racial, you know, development. Yes, that is um, so fascinating to me. And I think the research that you're doing is so fascinating. So let's talk about that a little bit. So so you are actually doing research with babies, very young babies. Yes. And children actually right now. Yeah. So tell us about what is the nature of your study and what are you finding about children? You know, from the biggest perspective, I want to celebrate in understanding what babies know. Mm. <laughs> so they are little scientists. They can pick up patterns. And that's this Uh, natural um, skill that they're coming Mm -hmm. into the world with. And so I want to get an understanding of what patterns are they noticing when it comes to looking at people's faces. Mm -hmm. And to then take that question a little bit more specifically, what we're interested in is, well, at what age are these infants and toddlers starting to create rich concepts? Like, rich representations of a particular face based on the features of that particular face. And so we can apply that kind of question to all sorts of ways that we as adults categorize faces, whether that's based on kind of gender, presentation, age of a person, say their emotion. There's all sorts of different ways that we can categorize. But right now, I'm really focusing in on this idea of categorizing faces that vary based on skin color, hair length, hair color, things Mm -hmm. like that. And from my adult perspective, I categorize that as, say, concepts of race. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not asking if say, a one-year-old or a two-year-old has an adult representation of race or the conceptualization of race. But what Mm -hmm. we want to know is, well, is this one-year-old or is this two-year-old starting to make their own representations of faces that seem to vary along the construct of race? So, Mm. of course, race is a socially created idea, but it's an idea, even though it's socially created, the creation of it is around physical observable differences between faces, right? right? So even though we know that there's no biological driver of race group differences, Mm -hmm. we define race based off of what's observed, observable features, right? right? And so in the U.S., race is something that is very critical to every aspect of our life. 
because of the history and the way that this country was developed. Correct. So uh, for a baby, if they're swimming and they're living and they're breathing, the culture of race being an important factor of how it dictates our lives, well, at what age do they start to pick up that information, right? Even without being explicitly taught. And so, you know, I'm asking just a very small kind of question, but could have really big kind of information for for parents, for caregivers, for educators, for, for anyone to think about this little baby that's been out in the world for just 12 months. <laughs> you know. And what are you finding about yeah, what, so, what they're what how they're recognizing and what are they recognizing? Right. So some of the data that we're finding seems to indicate that two-year-olds are making some sort of distinction between faces that are kind of racially categorized as white and mm-hmm. those that are racially categorized as black. So they seem to separate those two kinds of faces as something that is a human face, but these two human faces belong to two different kinds of categories. Mm. There are two different kinds of people that are being represented to them. Within your research, how are you making that distinction? Like, how do you know that that's what the baby is Right, because you can't just directly ask them. Right. right? (laughs) So as a developmental scientist, as somebody who's interested in child development, what I tried to do is come up with a game that can be played with infants and kind of capitalize on the things that they are really good at. So babies are really good at two years or at one years of age. They're really good at reaching and grabbing things, right? And they're very inquisitive. So what we do is we show them a female face, say that's a white female face, and then we might show them a black female face. And we want to see, do they treat those two faces as the same? Or do we say, here's a white female face and here's a black female face. Did the baby see those two faces as two individual people? And the Mm. way we do that is we hide these faces inside of a box and Mm -hmm. see how uh, persistent they are at trying to find the faces. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of this um, fun game where the baby and their caregiver sit at the table with me and I show them one face, say, look, look here, here's a face. I put it in the box. I take out a second face. Look, look here. I hide that second face in the box. And we do a little magic trick where I actually remove one of the faces without them knowing. And we see how persistent are they? Do they keep reaching? Do they keep looking for something else that's missing? Right? So we give them one of the two faces. But the question is, do they think there's another missing face? And if they think that there's another missing face, then we know that they're distinguishing between the two? Exactly. So if, okay. if they think there's another face, the behavior we're looking for is for them to reach more inside of the box, right? So if they thought, mm. oh, there's one face and they found that one face, they might not reach very much. They, they might be satisfied with that one single face. Right. But if they're not, they'll get, they're going to keep reaching, keep reaching, keep reaching to try to find that missing face. And so what we can, what we kind of 
draw the conclusions from that kind of behavior is if it's consistent, if every baby that comes into the lab is doing this, we can Mm -hmm. draw this conclusion that maybe at two years of age, seeing a white face and seeing a black face seems to have some sort of meaningful cue that those are two different kinds of people. So basically what you are saying then is from your research, we can tell that at least by the age of two, children are really distinguishing between a black face, for instance, and a white face. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they are making these distinctions that... They are making those distinctions. Yeah. One of the things I'm thinking of is that a lot of times we hear people say, well, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. Right. But what I'm hearing from you is, and from your research, is that that's really not true, that that we can prove that by the age of two, we are definitely seeing color. Yes. It seems that these two-year-olds are showing that they're tracking them as distinct individuals. What do you think the implications of that are for, say, implicit biases? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, one that I don't have you know, scientific data for. But what my guess would be, and something I want to keep pursuing, is as children start to develop rich concepts of some sort of group, so let's say a group of white people and a group of Black Mm -hmm. people at around three to five years of age, if they have the category for some sort of representation, that category is going to have associations, which is Mm -hmm. what implicit bias is really driven Mm by. So at two, I don't believe that they have a negative association or a positive Mm -hmm. association with either of the kinds of groups we're showing them. Mm -hmm. But it could mean that at two years of age, this is an even sensitive time to have children be experiencing people of lots of different race and ethnicity backgrounds, because it could be laying a foundation for later developing categories that then have associations, such as positive and negative ideas about, say, white and Black people. So I think what it could be the case is that we're tapping into a time when language is really exploding in infants and in, in, in toddlers, mm. right? So two-year-olds, that expressive language is really starting to become apparent. But what we don't know is how does that language piece then relate to these kind of visual concepts, these visual categories they're starting to develop. And we know that yes. the way that we talk about things like objects or people really does drive representation and concepts for infants and toddlers. So it's possible that at two years of age, not just are they building these categories due to the visual things that they're seeing in their lives, but Mm -hmm. it could also be supported by the language and the labels that they might be hearing from their environment uh, that could be contributing to this. Yeah. And and that's so interesting because sometimes we hear like, you know, by the time a child gets to kindergarten, for instance, and they say a derogatory word. Mm-hmm. Their parents are shocked and dumbfounded because they say, we don't talk like that at home. Right. And that may be true. But what I'm hearing, though, from you is that their environment includes everything, not just, right. you know, what their parents and family members may or may not be saying. 
And so that that language could have been heard anywhere. Right. They're still picking it up and they're still pulling it in to their categorizing. Yes. Yeah. So category representation. So the idea of like building a concept is really going to be driven by the knowledge of language, but also Mm -hmm. driven by what they see. Mm. And a contributing factor is the labels that they hear. And the majority of their life, the the vast majority of the people they see, are they all looking like one thing? And then they come into Mm. contact with somebody new who doesn't look like the majority of the people that they see. What do they do with that new example, new person? You know, like, how do they then apply that to the category that they have? Well, it's possible that they could just add that person into the existing category, or they create a new category for that Hmm. new person. And then they might start to hear some different kinds of labels, right? Mm. If you have a different label for someone who's, say, Black, and they say, oh, Black people do this, right? Making a general statement about Black Mm -hmm. people, kids are picking that up. And they're using that kind of language to then associate it with the visual representations that they're seeing. What my research shows is that, okay, a two-year-old has some rudimentary grouping, right, of a white face and a black face. They're seemingly making separations there. Now that they have those separations, the question is, okay, between two and, say, five years of age, what kinds of other information are now being added in to either keep those two representations separate, right, or maybe they at some point put them back together and realize, oh, well, that separation wasn't that important. Yeah. Right? It's it, just because there is a separation at two doesn't automatically mean, oh, they're going to be racist or something like that, right? Right. That's right. Not, definitely not the argument here, but more about this is an age in which they're noticing these kinds of differences among people. So what do we do about that? I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Sharice Pickron. She's a developmental scientist based at the University of Minnesota's Institute of Child Development. Dr. Pickron says the labels we use to describe people can make a big impact on children, even when they're infants, and how the simple act of learning someone's name can help to reduce implicit bias. I've heard you talk about when a child is between the ages of three and five, they experience something called in-group love. Uh And so can you talk a little bit about that, you know, and developmentally, how does that come about? Sure. You know, and some people argue this kind of in-group love is even starting from infancy. So for a little baby to survive, they need people to be caring for them. They need Mm -hmm. people to actually focus on that baby and want to make sure all its needs are taken care of. And what we mean by an in-group is the individuals of an in-group are oftentimes those who speak the same language, who look the same in similar ways, might be of similar ages potentially. And so the people who are in that baby's in-group are going to be particularly focused on their well-being and on their success, right? So it's possible that the development of an in-group is happening 
even at birth <laughs> um, in some ways. And this is, could be as a result of just evolution. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about kind of in-group love at, say, a three-year-old, there's this kind of preference that the child is going to identify somebody as their in-group member, that child is potentially going to be more willing to share resources with that other person, Mm -hmm. more willing to learn and engage and approach that person. And I will say there's lots of different ways that we can create an in-group, right? Like we all hold lots of different social identities. So a child's in-group could be driven by gender identity, Mm -hmm. right? Or it could be driven by uh, language, or it could Mm -hmm. be driven by race, or it could be driven by all three of those Mm -hmm. factors, for example. Potentially, it could be a, a trust thing. It could be a familiarity thing where I see somebody who speaks the same language as me, who looks the same as me. That person must share common beliefs or values and interests. And so I'm going to be more uh, adaptable and amenable to that person because of that. So can you give us an example maybe of that, of a child maybe that you've heard of or that you've worked with that kind of describes what you're talking about? Yeah, let me, I'll give two examples. One that's in the age range um, of that like three to six kind of age range. But the Mm -hmm. other example is from our toddler visits with our two-year-olds. So from one of our studies, I've had two instances now where, um, as I said, we show them different faces. We show Mm -hmm. them white female faces and and black female faces or white males and black males. And I had this little girl who, from my observation, presented as a a black child, had a black mother. Mm -hmm. And they came to do our game. And every time I showed her a black male face, she would say, daddy, daddy, daddy. Mm -hmm. She kept saying daddy every time we showed. And the the caregiver, her mother, kind of made this sound like, oh, that doesn't look like daddy, you know? And I was like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, just (laughs) let her do it. (laughs) I just want to hear what she has to say. And so then I, I showed her a white male face and she pauses and she goes, man. Hmm. So to me, it was really fascinating that this little two-year-old was making verbal distinctions between black men as falling in the category as a daddy. Yes. But white a white man did not go into that category and it was in a category of something called man. Very interesting. And to, yeah, and so that to me is an example of this kind of rich representation that these children might be developing. And we've had the same experience now with a little white boy. I was showing him white male faces Mm -hmm. and kept saying, daddy, daddy. And then um, we showed them white female faces and he said, mommy, mommy. But when we showed them the black faces, he didn't say anything. He kind of just had this like confused look on his face. Right. And I know mm. I'm, I'm kind of projecting here a little bit um, in terms of uh, an example for older children. So in the ages of like, say, four and six years, we are asking the question of if white children at four or six years of age show what we call an in-group preference to learning new information. Mm. So are they more likely to believe 
somebody who's in their in-group about some novel object. So what we're doing is we're showing this new object. We don't know what it's called. Who should you ask? Do you want to ask Maya or do you want to ask Jessica? And Maya happens to be a Black female and Jessica happens to be a white female. And so what we're starting to find is that the kids are showing an in-group preference to asking Mm. Jessica, the white female, to know this new object, what it's called. So this is kind of an example of what I mean by this like in-group love. So this, I'm shown something new and I don't know what it is. I'm going to go to the person that looks most familiar to me Mm -hmm. to ask them what this new information is. What can um, parents perhaps and caregivers do to kind of span that in-group, if you will, so that, you know, more people are in, how do we open up that in-group? Well, one of the things that um, some of my work has shown is that labeling. So the way we talk about someone or a group of people is very impactful, um, even in mm-hmm. infancy. You know, I, I I can't necessarily say that, oh, using certain language would open up that in-group. But what we know is that when we hear a specific name, for example, if we learn somebody's name, we're learning to pay attention to what's individual about mm-hmm. that person. Mm-hmm. And that is shown as a way to reduce implicit bias. Mm. So for children, for example, if they're watching or reading a book and there's different characters of different races, what we think is beneficial is to say, oh, look at this person. And even if that person doesn't have a name, maybe you add that name when you're reading the book and you say, mm-hmm. oh, this is Claire and this is Tiffany and this is Sharice, right? And you <laughs> add names to the characters it helps kids kind of gear in to say, oh, I should pay attention to the individualizing features of that person or of that character. And so we want to reduce the use of generalized labels. Okay. So mm-hmm. if we say something like, all white people do this, mm. or look at that group of Black people, look at that group of Asian people, they do this. That mm-hmm. very simple you know, however many words that was, has really powerful message to say Mm. that all of the people in that group, their individual and identity or information is not important to pay attention to. Uh, It's just saying, look at that group. They're all the same. But when we say, oh, look, look at Marcus. Marcus loves to jump and run and read books. Then we're learning, oh, Marcus is somebody who also likes to read books and jump and play on the playground just like me, Mm. right? So the the power of individual naming is being shown in the preschool age that can actually reduce implicit racial bias. Oh, I like that. Just by learning the name of a picture of a person, not even the, the real person in real life, but just a picture of a person of a different race than that child. Learning their name helps reduce racial bias. So I've also heard you talk about, for older children, having what's called a long trajectory of bias that might be driven by earlier experiences. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what you might be able to do to disrupt what might be called a long trajectory of bias? Yeah, so... 
I was recently revisiting some writing by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum Mm -hmm. um, and her work kind of talking about kind of just being able to kind of conceptualize what racism is or what systemic racism is. And she uses this really nice analogy of thinking about racism as like smog in the air. Yes. Right. And maybe Mm -hmm. this has come up before, but I really take take to that. Just like we don't want to be breathing polluted air for our lungs and our growth and everything, our physical health, we also don't want to be breathing smog that includes like racist messages in our air. And I really like this analogy of kind of systemic racism being like smog is that sometimes it's more apparent than other times, right? Mm. So sometimes pollution is more obvious to us than in other cases. That's true. Yeah. It's the same for for racism and and racialized messaging. Mm -hmm. It's also the case that for some people that the polluted air can differently impact individuals based on who they are. So when we think about this kind of long developing path of racial knowledge or racial bias, it's because of this smog, right? It's because Mm -hmm. of it. It's always around us. And we just have to think about ways that are going to help us on an interpersonal level reduce that smog. What is Mm. it that can be done, right? And we've already kind of identified being really mindful of the way we talk about people, Mm -hmm. using the kind of language we use, and being comfortable with talking about differences, the individual Mm -hmm. differences, right? And individual names are really important. The kinds of books and media seems to also be something that can help. Mm-hmm. And then being unafraid to actually have the conversation um, or to be unafraid of saying, if your child brings something up, even as a two-year-old, and they say, why is that person got brown skin, mm-hmm. right? Or why does that person have this physical thing and they're two and you're saying and they say that and you know oftentimes there's this shock and shame and worry like oh don't say that shush 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 don't say that out loud that in itself is a message right that we we don't want to convey that the other thing that's really interesting is that we see even within the U.S. different parts of the country based on the racial demographic and the history of integration Mm -hmm. can change the way children are learning different kinds of stereotypes, Mm. right? So children in Hawaii have a different set of stereotypes than, say, children in Massachusetts, for Mm. example. Mm -hmm. Even though they're the same age and they have the same education and things like that, because of the different histories of those two states and the different racial demographics of those two states, Mm -hmm. those children are going to develop different kinds of racial biases. And what we see is that children who are in racially mixed and racially integrated spaces Mm -hmm. have reduced implicit racial bias Hmm. Interesting. in in the long run. So they're potentially gaining a richer skill set to engage with people of different groups and different languages of different cultural backgrounds by getting that kind of multiple input at an early age that seems to help set kids up with more flexibility about who people are and what they represent.
Dr. Cherise Pickron is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota's Institute of Child Development, where she directs the Child Brain and Perception Lab. As always, we've written a discussion guide for this episode. Look for that at npr.org backslash early risers. While you're there, you can listen to all of our past episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for more tips and resources on how to talk with young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. Before we go, we are producing a new episode focusing on parents and caregivers and want to hear from you. Do you have a story to share about a time when you talk to your child about race or racism? Or maybe you have a specific question and want guidance. I'm here to help. Share your story or question with me at earlyrisers at npr.org. Or find us on social media. We're at Podcast Early on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Early Risers is hosted by me, Diane Halsey. Our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Our senior producer is Nancy Rosenbaum. Katie DeSell is our social media manager. Sound mixing by Rachel Breeze. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. As always, a special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>